Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, Tits Out Brigade. It's me, Anne. I wanted to let you know about a fundraiser that I'm doing all this month, the month of April 2023. Trans rights are under attack seemingly everywhere particularly in the United States that's been in the news lately, but it's an issue all over the place. And I, as a person, and this podcast as an entity, we stand with all trans people everywhere. And so to raise some money, I'm running this fundraiser all month called Tits Out for Trans Rights. So you can get all the details if you go to vulgarhistory.com slash donate. That's vulgarhistory.com slash donate. It's two-pronged, the fundraiser. So first of all, I'm raising money for the Trevor Project, which is an American organization that supports LGBTQ plus people. And then also I've got a new item in the merch store, which is an item featuring trans icon, the Chevalier Dayon, who I talked about in an episode last season with guest host Maya Dean. And all the proceeds from the sales of the Chevalier Dayon merchandise this month is going to be donated to Point of Pride, which is another American organization that helps support trans people. If there's another organization that you're planning to support this month anyway, somewhere close to home, something that is meaningful to you that supports trans people, there's a form also on my website where you can just list what the donation was and who you gave the money to. So at the end of the month, I can give a grand total of how much the Tits Out Brigade was able to raise as part of this fundraiser. Also, for everybody who wants to, I will give you a shout out to all the people who donate in a later episode of Vulgar History. So again, you can get all the details of this fundraiser at vulgarhistory.com slash donate. Tits Out for Trans Rights. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster and today we're having, we're, we're diversifying the portfolio of this show. We've talked before on the show about people of, of various genders and today's the first time I'm having a male guest on to talk about a man from history. And you know what? I'm not, I don't want to be exclusionary in this podcast. And this book is so good. And the historical character is so interesting. And the author is Patterson Joseph. So I was like, how can I not, how can I not feature this on my show? You know, so vulgar history, the name, it means a lot of things. And part of what it means is just looking at the history of the everyday people, the stories that are lesser told. So that's the stories of working class people, the stories of often people of color, um, trans people, queer people. And so what Patterson is doing in his new novel, which has just come out, The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho, is he's illuminating the story of 
a lesser known black man from English history. And in so doing, he's shining a light on black people in England prior to the 20th century. He explains all about that in this incredible conversation. I want to mention also, I came into this knowing him from his work as an actor. He was in a show called Timeless that was on NBC. A few years ago, it was a time travel show that I really liked, but you might also be familiar with him. He was in Knots and Crosses. He was in, um, I'm literally just looking at his IMDb. He was in uh, Neverwhere. His peep show is uh, he's very well known for that in the UK. He's a successful Shakespearean actor. Anyway, and now he is an author of the book, The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho, which just came out in North America this week. And I had such a good time talking to him. Um, you can hear me keeping my fangirlishness at bay. Although after we finished recording, I did tell him how much I love Timeless. But anyway, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Patterson Joseph. All right. So Patterson Joseph, I'm so excited to talk to you about your book, which is just coming out in North America. That's what this is all timing for. That's right. Excited to talk to you too, Anne. So first of all, just so everybody's understanding where you're coming from, can you explain who Charles Ignatius Sancho was? Okay. Wow. Uh, I'm going to try and do this briefly. This is going to be my challenge. He only lived for 51 years, but he had an action-packed life. Charles Ignatius Sancho, what do we know about him? The bare bones are that he was born on a slave ship crossing the Atlantic from the east, the west coast, sorry, of Africa to the Americas. He ended up in Colombia and was baptized Charles Ignatius. At the age of three, he was already orphaned. He was sent by his owner, we presume, to England to live in a place called Greenwich, Royal Greenwich to be precise, which is southeast of London across the river. He grows up to be a sort of pet to these three sisters who were unnamed by him or by anybody. And he is like a lot of those 18th century kids. He is treated as a sort of ornament. He's then given the name Sancho because they think he looks like the round servant of Cervantes, Don Quixote. And he is not allowed to read. They didn't want working people to read and they certainly didn't want slaves and servants to read. So he was not taught to read. He tried to read one day. They beat him. He ran away. And the nearby park called Blackheath Park um, had the wonderful John, who was the Duke of Montague, who lived in a house there. He found Sancho fortuitously, rescued him, brought him back to the three sisters, asked that this clever lad be taught to read and write. They refused. So he secretly gave him books. He grew up in about the age of about sort of 19. He leaves the ladies somehow, we don't know how, and becomes the butler to the widow of John, Duke of Montague, and ends up writing a lot of letters, which we have handed down to us, and they are published. He writes reams and reams of music, and not dirgy, sad, heavy music, as you might expect for a black man in the middle of the slave trade in Britain. He writes jigs and cotillions and reels and dance music. He has what I call a militantly joyful uh, repertoire of songs. And then he ends up as a valet or valet to the son-in-law to the Duke of Montague, so the first Duke of the Second Creation, a man called George. And whilst he was in service with him, he again writes even more music, uh, is painted by Thomas 
Gainsborough. So if you Googled Sancho, you'd see that portrait first, an extraordinary portrait. The first time I ever saw him in 99 was with that portrait, and I was stunned. And then he ends up owning a grocery store at the end of his life, right next to Downing Street, which is, which is, which is the seat of our, our leaders, our prime ministers. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah. Called Charles Street. And on Charles Street, he has a shop. There were no racist laws against voting. But they certainly were gender laws against owning property. And they didn't have to have racist laws because what black person could own property? But he did. He owned a, a grocery store. And he then ended up being the first man of African origin that we know to vote in the British parliamentary election in 1780, the year he died. So that's his life in a nutshell. And my next question. So you mentioned you saw his portrait in 1999. So how was it that you came upon him as a person? Well, it was the Americans, as always. The Americans are always to blame. So a wonderful American lady called Gretchen Gertziner wrote a book called, um, I think it was published as Black London originally in the United States, but it's called Black England. And I found this book in 1999. And coincidentally, one of my near neighbors, we grew up in the same neighborhood in London, um, the uh, writer Zadie Smith has written now the foreword or a new foreword to that fresh edition that was published last year. And, and Zadie and I both came across it. We didn't know each other, but we both came across it at the same time. And it's a wonderful history book about uh, Britain before the middle of the 20th century that had a black populace. And some of the famous people are in there too. And this man, Ignatius Sancho, appears uh, smack dab in the middle of the 18th century. And the first thing I see, Anne, is this portrait and if you have looked at it, if you're listening to this and you, and you take a look at it, it is one of the most extraordinary things because it depicts a man in a beautiful, lush, red waistcoat, beautiful gold braiding and gold buttons, a hand leisurely inside his coat as if he's a man of, of leisure and doesn't have to even try, a sort of smirk almost on his face, beautiful hair. We think it's real hair, not, not a wig looking off into the distance. And it's painted by Thomas Gainsborough, the greatest portraitist, arguably, of the 18th century. And this is a black man. You know, I, I thought it was a Hogarth, William Hogarth sort of pastiche. This is, might be, or a parody, this might be what a black man looked like if he was allowed to be educated. But no, it turns out that it's this man. And once I read his story, uh, I thought this is the one. Of all the people in the book that I read, and there are many people going all the way back to the Roman era, third century AD and some extraordinary stories through the courts of Henry VIII and uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Stories I'd never heard before, though I'm a, a Briton born and bred. And I'm at this point in my, uh, I mean, I'm about 40 at this point. So it's nearly thought sort of mid thirties. I had never heard any of these stories, Anne, um, in all of my le life. I'd never seen anything depicted like this in a movie or in a theater. And I was stunned. And Sancho's life is so colorful, having acted with Garrick, David Garrick, very famous naturalistic actor of the 18th century, knew Samuel Johnson. Jo Samuel Johnson almost wrote a biography of his life, but was distracted by the death of a friend. And I, I just thought this man deserves to have his story told. And, and that was 20, well, more, obviously, 24 years ago. And the more I've thought about him and the more I've read about him, the more sort of confident as a black Briton I've become, because I see that the history is before my parents came here in the, in the mid uh, 20th century famous Windrush generation, as we call them, because they came as, as, as sort of colonists. They were, they, were, they were actually 
from the British colony of, uh, in the Caribbean, mainly some Africans, some Indians, but definitely the Caribbean. And they call the Windrush generation because a boat called the Windrush came in 1948. And that seemed to be the beginning of black history on this island. But that wasn't true. Um, I only found that out uh, very late in life. So it's been my sort of, I suppose, my writing mission, apart from my day job as an actor, my, my writing mission to write about this man and about his times. And so you started off with a one-man show. That's right. A play yeah. was the first, the first way you wrote about him, yeah? Yeah, a monodrama, as they fancily call it these days. Uh, monodrama. Um, and um, strangely, even though I first performed it in its larger form, rough form, I suppose, at the National Theatre Studio here in London, well, in London, I ended up really only having a home for it in America for the first few years of its life. It, we, we were living in a post-racist world, you have to understand, I was told, um, in, in that period. And I'm talking about, I finished the play originally in 2010 and 2011. I was looking for a home, couldn't find a home. I did it a bit in Oxford at the Playhouse there, wonderful theatre, and they co-produced it with me. Couldn't find a home. And then 2014, as I was looking for a home, uh, the first place that took it, extraordinarily for me, was the Kennedy Center in Washington. And, um, and I thought this was an old play, people aren't going to be really, in, an old story, people aren't going to be interested in it. And here's where my, I suppose, political awakening, even though it is obviously a political story in some ways, but it's more about celebrating his life, that's what the play is about. I had these four African-American women who would probably be in their early 70s, mid-70s, some probably touching 80, who at the end of the play said, son... This idea that Sancho's looking for his papers to vote is not a new story. That's happening to us today. And it was such a mind-blowing. And you imagine having been told for the last decade that this was an old story, that this is a sort of dusty story that we've heard too much about and we don't want to... To be told by these women that the story of Sancho desperately trying to vote was their story opened my eyes to not only you know the fact that we do need these stories... That, that it's actually, it's a pertinent story for today. Yeah, and the, no, the novel came out of wanting to do something a little deeper, which we can talk about if you like. No, I absolutely want to. I'm curious about that. So it was, you encountered the story, you created this play. So the decision to turn it into a novel, I mean, versus doing a nonfiction book. How, yes. how did that, how did you make that decision? Was it easy to decide? Well, I suppose it was because that's my bag. You know, I, I do... I do characters. I play characters. If anybody's ever seen anything that I've done, um, what I tend to do is what most um, drama schools try and teach you to do, or most good directors, they get you to sort of hot seat. In other words, um, you have to ask the question, so um, who are you and what are you doing? And you say, well, my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a prince and my, my, my father has just died. So what's the problem? Well, my, I'm unhappy because my mother just married my uncle. Oh, that's shocking. Yes, it is shocking. And it's only a few weeks after he died. So you, you sort of de develop this sort of inner monologue. Uh, or if anybody's seen my work on, say, um, um, a couple of shows that I've done in America, Timeless, which is a time travel show I did for the M NBC and for uh, and The Leftovers that I did in, uh, on HBO, rather than just present a character that you've just been given, you just do the lines, you have to think of a back story. And so doing the play, which is so forward-facing, so front-facing, it's like you meet Sancho himself being painted. You're in Gainsborough's painting room as an audience member. I talk to you as this man being painted, and you wonder who I am, and I start to tell you my story, and I animate it with music, etc. 
And then you have him in the hustings, as they were called, which is the vote, which is also a public show of hands. You have the portrait, which is a sort of performance, I suppose, by Gainsborough, performance of a man, the shocking performance of this black man. And then you have his letters. So few people could read and write. So your letters weren't very private. They were likely to be read to a family by the man or the woman of the household, again, public. Letters that he wrote to the newspapers, public. Music that is meant to be played in public. I thought, what was his and what was his interior life like? So I did what I would do with Hamlet, or what I would do with, you know, Brutus in Julius Caesar, and I hot seated him, made him tell his story from the inside, and the novel seemed to be the best form, the most intimate form of storytelling. Squiggles on a page become pictures in your head, and and then they are almost permanent images that you have created indelibly. Uh, in your head. If you think about the first time you read, read Jane Eyre or uh, Pride and Prejudice, before you saw Colin Firth in his glory, you would have you would have seen pictures of who your ideal Darcy was, your ideal Elizabeth was. And that's what I think the novel can do better than anything. So that's what I wanted. The diary form is towards his son, Billy, his final son, who was only um, five when Sancho died. And, and Billy's just been born, I imagine, at the beginning of these diaries and uh, at the beginning of the book. And he collates his life diaries so that Billy can know him when he's passed away and um, Billy becomes an adult. So there, that, that's in a nutshell everything, really. Well, and I think it's such a really, honestly, like I love historical fiction and I think it's such a good way to really delve into these stories versus just being, here's a list of dates and information. Who remembers dates? Yeah. I mean, I know that we've got a bunch of dates. We know what happened in 1776. We might know what happened in uh, 1863 or 1864, but we might not know the details of it. And so it doesn't personalize it. Mm-hmm. I, I think we need images as human beings. I think we need them to be moving or, or even to be still, but we need to see them before we can remember them. And, and certainly... If you give me a bunch of statistics around an event, however tragic it is, unless I know a personal story within that, that I've, that's touched me as a human being, I may or may not remember it. I certainly may or may not be touched by it. So this is an attempt. I was at a, at a, a book event this evening, and I read a bit of uh, the story. And you can see how it touches people more when they can picture. Some people even came to me and said, I could really picture some of the settings that you had. And I thought, well, that's great because that's now permanently in your head. Uh, you're not being told it. You're, you're seeing it. That's, I think, why stories are so vital, why the, the rise of the, uh, you know, the streaming services, to our surprise, we used to think, oh, that's going to diminish storytelling, but it's only increased it. We have a hunger for story, and um, it's our best way to remember anything, I believe. Connected to that sort of concept, the way that you illuminate the life of Charles Ignatius Sancho in this book, it's illuminating the life of a person and of a culture of people of color in England in this time period that is people don't know was there. So yeah. it's a way to not just, uh, rather than inventing a character, you're showing like, no, actually this this was happening. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's not very Bridgerton. I, I, sometimes I think people want to get a hook and say, it's just like Bridgerton. It's nothing like Bridgerton, anybody who reads it. But but what it is, 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 a, is an attempt to balance the colour contrast in our idea of British history. And I'm talking about the Brits now, let alone people around the world, who've been sort of sold a kind of propaganda 
whether accidentally or on purpose, um, in some cases, that Britain was always a white country, has always been a white country. Its history is only white. And of course, a rather angelic picture of the slavery period where they were the heroes blockading the uh, Europeans who were coming to bring slaves across to their colonies in uh, the Americas. So this is a redrawing, I suppose, a reshaping, and even, I dare say, a rewriting of that history, because some historians, particularly British ones, cry, you know, you're rewriting history, to which I boldly say, yes, we are, because you wrote it very badly. Mm -hmm. there, are no, there are no women there. there. The gay community is missing. There are no transgender people, and there are absolutely no black people in this history. And there are very few working class people of any ethnicity in your histories. All the heroes are, tend to be male, and they certainly tend to be white Europeans. So there, there is a redrawing of history that needs to be done, I think, by those of us who have a chance now to uh, tell our stories. Um, and I think a lot of us, a lot of those communities that I've talked about, have been rather marginalized from the grand historical record. So it does feel overwhelmingly that it was a male world and a, a European world. Uh, and, and we sort of live that legacy now and what's strange to me, what's really strange, Anne, is that you'll hear people defending to the death these sort of what they call an anti-woke, they're sort of anti-woke, like they, they think woke is pretending that people were here that weren't here, pretending that women had a role and they didn't, pretending that, well, actually, no, it's not pretending, it's just that your history has been curated and it's been curated with, by people either with an agenda or with a lack of interest in the other stories that there are there to be told, which then paint a fuller picture. As I say, the color contrast is now put, put brighter so we can actually see, you know, unlike the image on this uh, Zoom call that we're on, we can actually <laughs> see more clearly exactly who was there. And, and it's only our history. It's like, it's like family stories. It's like only hearing one side of the families, hearing grandpa's story. Now, that's fine, but what was his wife doing? What was grandma doing? Because grandma was also helping the family. Well, where's her story? Well, it wasn't written because women weren't really allowed to have that, that um, pen in their hand. They were too busy looking after children, cooking and cleaning. So it's about time, I think, these other stories came. And I toured America with the play, as I said, quite extensively. And I remember being, and I'm not just blaming Harlem, but I remember being in Harlem at the National Theatre of Harlem and I heard this question, and it wasn't an uncommon question. I'd heard it in other places in America. Uh, Patterson, w w did Britain ever have slavery? Which is a kind of hard question not to roll your eyes at when, when the audience is staring at you and trying to be sort of charming and affable. This is at the end of the play. And I went, yes, it did. Interestingly, because this was a colony, America, it brought the slaves over in order to make sure that that colony was working efficiently with cotton and all the other things it was making. Also, in the Caribbean, they, they had colonies, and that's where they grew their sugar and their, their sugar cane and uh, rum uh, and tobacco, etc. And this idea that Britain was somehow this angelic nation has sort of seeped through history, for hundreds of years, by the way, not just recently, and sort of seeped through our consciousness, so that when you see a wonderful, colourful, exciting show like Bridgerton, you can imagine, as I say in the preface, black people 
brown people sashaying unmolested through London. And that was not the case. This was not the case at all. So this is a sort of redrawing. It's not propaganda. It's a story. It's like Oliver Twist, David Copperfield. But it literally is saying we need to, you need to redraw your picture because it was a lot less uh, uh, easy than, than you might imagine. And Britain certainly was the master of slavery. And it was only when they had no choice in many ways financially and in terms of insurrections the slave revolts that were increasing in the Caribbean, they had no choice but to end it. And then they blockaded other nations from getting slaves, but not through any altruism. It was simply, we don't want them getting slaves so that they can have industries like we do. I mean, you know, it's the basis of the British Empire and um, the the insurance companies like Lloyd's, Barclays Bank, Tate and Lyle, the Tate Modern, the Tate Britain, these wonderful institutions, which are, they are wonderful and very philanthropic now. But honestly, they, they were built on the backs of slave ship insurance. And, and this, is a, this is a sort of buried story. So whilst this is an entertainment, it's also, I think, helpful to rebalance people's idea of what British history was. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus. During Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. And we're back. 
You mentioned that the the plantations, the sugar trade and things. And so you do yep. touch in this book, you mentioned that um, Charles Sancho, he ran a grocery store and some of the products, like the products he sold were yep. sugar, like things that were from the slave trade. And you do mention yes. that in the book. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. And when I did the one man show, I literally thought, I, I know he must have sold these goods. In fact, I see it in his letters and some of, you know, accounts of, of them having to having you know cutting blocks of sugar in the shop, how has he reconciled himself to this? And in the one man show, I have seventy five minutes, and I didn't feel that I had sufficient information to be able to tackle that. It was a sort of let's meet Sancho, an audience with Sancho, so it was much lighter in a way. There's probably many reasons why I don't think I can do it again in its in its form. When I sat down to write the novel, and this was during lockdown. Uh, I was able to write the body of it. I'd written some of it in, uh, a few years before, but the body of it. I thought, I'm not letting him off the hook. I want my heroes flawed, please. I want to see them warts and all, please. I want to see every angle of their lives. There's a new biography of um, Martin Luther King coming out, and I want to see that too. I want to see where he's a man like I'm a man, compromised um, with his lusts, with his faults and foibles, and yet heroic all the same. I want to see a fully rounded man who I can cheer on, but at the same time go, oh, well, you're not an, a an angel. You're not a messianic figure. You are an ordinary man, but my goodness, look what you achieved. I want my men and women, heroes and heroines, to be human first. So Sancho had to deal with, and does I make him deal with the slavery issue in the novel. And remember, that, well, remember that I would say the novel, because it's written in diary form, gives me intimacy so I can get his inner thoughts. And it's also written for his son, who's only five years old. Uh, sorry, a, a baby, when he, when, he, when he begins to collate these diaries for his son to know him later in life. He dies, um, Sancho, when the boy's only five. And he imagines him an adult finding these papers, written from the age of 17 to his death in his early 50s. And I want Sancho to reveal himself. And Sancho wants to reveal himself to his son. A bit like my dad used to Suddenly, when I was 14, start telling me stories of back home in St. Lucia. My mum would say, let the child go to bed. It's, it's bedtime. He's, he's got school tomorrow. But my dad was compelled. And I didn't know until years later when I had a son, I thought, he wanted me to know who he was before he became dad, before he became this man. And I think a lot of our parents do that. Well, when I was a child, and we block our ears, but actually it's a, an attempt for them to pass on to them, us their biography. And he says in the book, as you see, know thy father and forgive him. And, it, and the whole story really is about him not explaining it or, or in some ways excusing it, but to present it, to present the reasons why he felt he had no choice in the matter or the choice that he made rather. Um, so yeah, a flawed hero by, by all accounts. Well, and part of his story as well, um, and I assume in in real life is as too, was that he grew up surrounded by white people. And it wasn't until later that Charles Sancho encountered other free black people in general. So there's a scene where, um, not to spoil your book, but he goes, I think it's, is it a pub or it's a dance hall or something? And he's yes, suddenly yes, surrounded yes. by yes, yes. by non-white people. And he's just suddenly feels so out of place because. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing you see, we presume all sorts of things about, well, you're black, you just fit in, but it's cultural. It's cultural, it's class too. 
Where do you fit in? And Sancho was an educated man, educated, self-educated, sure, but very educated. He worked for the Duke of Montague, who worked for the royal family. In fact, his boss later was the governor of Windsor Castle. Sancho had a room at Windsor called Sancho's Room. You see this from the modern, well, I see the archive now of the, the Duke of Montague, his descendant, who's called the Duke of Buccleuch. Um, lovely Richard, as I call him. Richard has shown me the archives, and there is Sancho's room. He do, he wasn't like other servants. When he worked for the, the Montague family, he was a butler. He's the highest of them all. If you think about Carson in, you know, Downton, the butler ran the household and was not there to be seen with all the other servants at the bottom of the chain. He was the top man. So he didn't have a lot of interaction with these people on a level. And there he is meeting Anne Sancho, who becomes his wife, his other half, his best self, as he says in his letters. Uh, my, my hen. He loves her to distraction. Why? This is a black woman, probably born in London, certainly baptized in Whitechapel in London, who is also uh, capable um, of uh, great uh, th- sort of learning. She was certainly educated her daughters. So did Sancho. They could read and write. You can find Betsy, his youngest daughter's letters in the British Library. So he was out of his time. So finding this tavern, which you, you see a lot of accounts of people coming to London and saying they were black taverns. Um, and I think they're presuming that they were only frequented by black people, but I, I think that's hardly possible. So I think it's probably they saw some black people in there. They would have been Chinese. They would have been um, people from, a, um, the, uh, from um, the Middle East, Arabs. They certainly would have been Indians. Everybody from the, the far-flung corners of the diaspora and uh, the, uh, the British colonies uh, and anywhere they traded with, they would have been there in these, in these taverns. So I imagine the music, which they never describe. They call them Negro frolics and Negro hops. So even in that terms, you, you still hear life there must have been life in there. There must have been something. But what was the music like? And I imagine the Irish drum, which I play, the circular drum, which they also play in North Africa as well because of you know, all sorts of trading routes from hundreds of years back. The circular drum with a little um, um, bone-like, it looks like a, a, piece, a, a bone, but it's made of wood, the butter. Playing that, that drum, like a table, and then flutes. And then the kora, the African um, instrument that looks a little bit like a cello. You could imagine um, also other percussion instruments, people who were violinists who worked for the theatre, people who worked in the court as trumpeters. You would have imagined the music being very lively and the dancing to be lively. So I imagine him going into this setting, but not only that, meeting Anne Sancho, who becomes his wife in that setting, and really almost clinging on to this community because he finally, finally belongs mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah. Well, especially as he was a musical man himself. Oh, his reams of music. I mean, I wish I was a bit more musical in some ways. I would have probably written more about the music, but I didn't feel highly qualified for it. But he wrote so much music. And as I said, it's sort of dance music. And, you know, he might even have, <laughs> he might even have, you know, instructions like line dancing. Each gentleman turn his partner, balance and rigadoon step. Each gentleman turn his partner the other way, balance and rigadoon step. And in it, you can hear his voice almost, his joy, refusing to be bowed, cowed. He kept this music as a sort of lively beat in his creativity. And and that's the funny thing about getting his voice. 
the letters give you something of his voice. He loves to talk, loves his erudition, loves to show off a bit. He's got that vanity about him. But there are also accounts of Sancho being found on the street. It's actually in the novel at some point. But this is, comes literally from verbatim, people writing this down and saying, this is what he did. He's walking along the street one day. He's accosted, not really accosted, but he sees two fashionables, two young dandies, I suppose, fops, who walk by him. And one of them whispers, smoke Othello. To which it was said, he turned, walked in front of them, slapped his hand on his paunch, which was quite round always. And he said, I, sir, such Othellos you meet with, but once in a century, such Iagos as you we meet with in every dirty passage. Proceed, sirs. And apparently they scurried off. And I think that's the man. That's the man. You want to know that man. And, and, um, and you know, him meeting Anne, giving him that sort of cultural grounding and strength, um, it, it paints such a round picture of an amazing Briton who has been forgotten. We don't know anything about him. I met people a lot tonight, black people too, who, who only are now finding out about him. So mm-hmm. I hope to spread the word in the States as well when I come over as the book is published on the 11th, I think, of April. Mm-hmm. And this episode's going to come out just after that. So the book will be available oh, to buy. My Just as a final question, and you've, you've touched on this and I think every answer you just gave, but what, what um, connection do you find between the story of Sancho and, and today's, today's society? Well, I mean, I feel that the biggest thing about Sancho is the obstacles that he faced uh, in his life. He surmounted so many of them. Um, and right at the end of his life, the act of voting for, I suppose, a proto-abolitionist. It had only just begun then. He died in 1780, called Charles James Fox. It was an amazing act of revolution from the time he was born to the time of his death. When you think born on a slave ship with no power, all the way through to standing up, and they have to stand up and be counted with your property papers maybe in your hand and say, I vote for the anti-slavery, I vote for Charles James Fox. That was amazing. And I think if he, in his time, could surmount those obstacles, which are almost total, then we certainly, working people as well, obviously, as black people need to fight as hard as we can to keep the ability to vote and to get out and vote. Whatever obstacles are facing you, get yourself a driving license, get yourself a passport. Even if it costs you a bit of money, this is your right that clearly we know many people have died for. That's, I think, is his his greatest legacy. On a personal level, he's also allowed me to feel much more part of the Britain that I grew up in, um, where I was often asked, where were you from? Then you you say an area that you were born in as a sort of challenge, and they say, "No, where are you really from?" Mm-hmm. You say another area, and they go, "No, where are your parents from?" And you say Saint Lucia in the Caribbean. They go, "Ah, satisfied." When that makes me feel not at home. Well, Sancho's story has grounded me in a long history, and um, I'm grateful to him. Mm-hmm. I just want to emphasize to people as well that this book is also really fun. <laughs> I yeah. think it's important. Yeah, it is. Is it couldn't help but be because yeah. you know his, his favorite author who he wrote to in the last two years of his life they became friends was a guy called Lawrence Stern who who arguably wrote the first comic novel Tristram Shandy in the English language and made up he loves to make up words and and go down cul-de-sacs you know of story he is a wonderful raconteur Sancho in his letters as Stern would have been in life uh, mm-hmm. and so yeah there's light as well as shade there's a lot of light though because this is a man who as I said 
was an optimist and militantly joyful. Mm-hmm. Always had to find the joy mm-hmm. in the darkness. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for talking to me yeah, today. Such a pleasure, Anne. That was such a pleasure. Thank you. So again, the name of this fantastic book, and I super recommend it. It's such a lively, fun, interesting story. I mean, you heard from Patterson talking now, like his, his enthusiasm and his, um, his joy really comes through in this book. And the character of Charles Ignatius Sancho, like from the letters that exist, like I think he really captures the, the voice of this really interesting, really fascinating character. So The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho is out now. It's been out in the UK for a while, and it's now just out in North America, too. And I want to mention there is an audiobook version, which Patterson himself narrates. So if you enjoyed hearing his voice on this podcast, then maybe you would enjoy enjoying the book in that way as well. And I also wanted to mention Patterson is on Twitter at Ignatius underscore Sancho. So you can follow him there to get more information about him and where he's going to be. Uh, sounds like he's planning some more of a book tour potentially in around the UK and also in North America. So maybe you'll be able to see him in person at some point. My name is Anne Foster, and this is the Vulgar History Podcast. And you can follow me on TikTok at Vulgar History and on Twitter at Vulgar History Pod. I also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Anne Foster Writer. And that is where for a small monthly donation, you can get extra stuff from me, like ad-free episodes, um, early access to them of Vulgar History, as well as bonus episodes of So This Asshole, where I talk about terrible men from history. I like talking to Patterson today about like a cool man from history because usually the only man I talk about are dirtbags. Anyway, Patreon. Um, I also do Vulgar Peace Theater where I talk about costume dramas and a couple of black history related costume dramas that we're planning to talk about soon. We're going to be talking about Chevalier, a movie that I think is just out now. The Chevalier St. George, who was a black man, sometimes referred to as the Black Mozart, which is not true, but he was a black man who composed at around the same time as Mozart. That movie just came out. I think it's in the theaters or maybe it's streaming now. And I'm excited to watch that as well. Also in Vulgar Peace Theater, we're going to be talking about eventually The Woman King starring Viola Davis. Anyway, I'm all about learning about people from history that I hadn't known about before. And I think those are all the announcements I had to say. So yeah, until next time, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.